Collectors Club. Big Harry Summer. Well, hello everyone and welcome to Bigfoot Collectors Club, the show where we sometimes, not today, talk to amazing guests about their personal paranormal history and share stories of high strangeness. That we will do today. Mm. I'm your host, Michael McMillan. With me always is your other host... Bryce Johnson. And our super producer... Riley Bray. Oh, yeah! Yeah, It's just the three of us boys in the clubhouse Mm -hmm. because you're... Ready? Get pumped. We are about to kick off our latest multi-part deep dive series. Let's get deep. Let's get so deep. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. We're going to get into it this week and for the rest of Big Harry Summer. And, of course, all of this is leading up to Bigfoot's Birthday Bash Live in downtown Los Angeles at 2-Bit Circus On Thursday, August 24th at 7.30 p.m. Doors open Mm. at 6. (laughs) Great. Get your tickets at 2bitcircus.com. There'll be links in the episode show notes. And if you're not in L.A., don't worry because we're going to live stream it on popclounge.com. So in town, 2bitcircus.com. Out of town, popclounge.com. Also, I think we failed to mention this before. But we'll be doing uh, VIP sessions over live stream before the show as well. So check all that out at popsylounge.com. Yeah, all three of us in one. Instead of individuals, you're going to get all one. three BCC Baby. boys in one shot. The three platinum package. Platinum package, you might say. <laughs> Love that. Yeah. Um, you, think, you, think, you think Bigfoot's ever had a birthday party before? Or is this the first? So. No. I think this is the first. First time ever. We're making yeah. up for lost years here. Bigfoot yeah, yeah. deserves a, a Chuck E. Cheese style pizza <laughs> birthday party. Yeah. Ooh, Guys, me? Games. Yes, yes Bigfoot, you, Bigfoot. You. <laughs> for those of you who are buying tickets, you might go, well, this seems a little steep for the live show. It's actually $20 of that goes to drinks, games, and stuff. In So you get that money back. You spend it yep, at the, at the right. venue. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's yeah. like in a Dave and Buster's card, basically. Yeah. And you're yeah. going to want to spend it at the venue. I mean, this place has it's all cool. kinds of cool uh, games. Like it's like it's basically like an arcade and 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 theme made for adults. Yeah. I mean, it's so fun. I had a hard time uh, paying attention during our meeting there. It was I was all <laughs> over the place. See if you listeners at home can find out when Bryce is having a hard time paying attention to this episode. <laughs> at uh, us. What? Huh? <laughs> at, at, huh? What? Bigfoot Pod on what they're now calling. Calling X, I guess. Jesus. Okay. Jesus. <laughs> um, show your big hairy summer love as well by going over to store.bigfootcollectorsclub.com. It's not too late. They're selling out of our ultra limited edition big hairy summer t-shirts. You want to grab those and wear them to the party. Show your love. Yeah. Okay. Let's do this. Boys, do we need to take a moment and just check in? How is everyone feeling we're we're in the second week of August already. Is everyone doing okay? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Summer good. Yeah. Summer it's treating a, you well. It's a it's been an interesting year, but yeah, we're we're getting it's been by. Wild. Yeah, you know, it's been yeah. wild. You yeah. know, last time we did a big 
summer multi-parter this late in the summer was Roswell during 2020, another rough summer. Mm. So I'm going to see if I can carry on the tradition with with what we're getting into today. Yeah, deep dives in strange times. I I, I like it. That's what we need. (laughs) Well, as I said, we are fast approaching Bigfoot's 65th birthday. On August 28th, 1965, excuse me, on August 28th, 1958, large, I got excited about that, 65. You love it when there's a typo right out of the gate. (laughs) Right out of the gate. You know what? The worst is behind you. Yeah, you you got it done. That makes him a senior citizen. Yeah. August 28th, 1958, large, unidentifiable footprints were found at a logging site in Northern California, which quickly led to headlines around the world announcing that a creature nicknamed Bigfoot was making itself known to the American public. Although it wasn't the first time stories of a hairy, human-like ape creature had been seen in the woods, an identical entity known as Sasquatch in Canada was already emerging from First Nations lore in the modern world. But 1958 marked the dawn of Bigfoot as we know it, he, her, they, today. All summer long, we've been examining stories of high strangeness involving big hairy monsters. Now, while the first two descriptors certainly apply to Bigfoot, what about the third? After all these years of researching, discussing, and in some cases even looking for Bigfoot, can we really call Bigfoot a monster? As journalist, author, and Bigfoot researcher John Green wrote in his 1978 book, Sasquatch, The Apes Among Us, Although Sasquatches are described as being very big, there's nothing monstrous about their behavior. A few incidents have been undoubtedly spine-chilling for the people involved, but I have found no one who tells of a Sasquatch actually doing anything to hurt them. In most cases, it was just there, not engaged in any activity more exciting than standing still or walking along. All right, well, you're going to play this character a lot in this series, Bryce, so you better commit to what you just did. Right. <laughs> Stamped. <laughs> For the listener at home, too, who's doing excellent uh, imaginary prop work with his pipe while yeah. he uh, gave that read. I'm not Thank sure you. if he canonically, if John Green canonically smoked a pipe, but... Um, we'll allow it. You know, he was born I in just the needed 20s. To... I just needed to start making choices fast. My, these Got lines it. just <laughs> totally crept up on me. <laughs> <laughs> Much right. like Bigfoot. Yep, yeah. uh, listeners, that's your first indicator. All right, here we go. <laughs> now, whether we're discussing Canada's Sasquatch or America's Bigfoot, the cryptid pretty much behaves like an intelligent animal that wants to avoid confrontation with humans. Sure, you have your occasional tales like the Bigfoot of Chicago case, allegedly, where allegedly a Bigfoot chased a young man through a forest preserve in 1967. We did that a few episodes ago. And, of course, there's the Ape Canyon incident, where a pack of hairy mountain devils, as they were called at the time, allegedly attacked Fred Beck and a group of prospectors in rural Washington in 1924. But when you think of Bigfoot, don't you guys think of a gentle forest spirit? I, I really do. do. I, yeah. I mean, you know, also, there's there's the animal side of it where it's like, you know, you, you picture a gentle animal, but there are predators, and I think probably it has some sort of, you know, survival uh, aggression, but yeah. I, I I don't 
view I don't I don't view it as a a menacing spirit or creature. Yeah, yeah I would tend I would tend to agree. I mean, but uh, for me, definitely, uh, you know. Nature guardian, forest guardian dweller, mm-hmm. but but don't put that thing, don't put baby in a corner, and don't exactly. poke it. Otherwise, yeah. uh, it needs to uh, turn on and turn up quickly, which it, I think it very much can do. Well, the primary agenda for this BCC deep dive is to construct a timeline of Bigfoot's history. We'll Great. take a look at the role of wild men in folklore and history, the emergence of Sasquatch in Canada the arrival of Bigfoot in California, the Patterson-Gimlin film, which we really haven't revisited in depth since the very first episode, the popularity of Bigfoot in mass culture, as well as revisit a handful of Big Harry stories from the last 255 episodes. Right. But I do wonder by the end of it if our take on Bigfoot will look any different and if we should really consider him, her, or they to be a monster. As with previous multi-part deep dives, I'm going to ask Riley, who stands in for the listener as the resident novice of these stories, what do you know of and think about Bigfoot at this point in time? Oh boy, if you told me before we started making this podcast the amount that Bigfoot would be a part of my life, uh, I would not have <laughs> believed you. So, you know, before we started this, I, I think I thought of Bigfoot as like something you put a sticker of on your bong or mm-hmm. something along those lines. And then we started making the show. And I was like, oh, this really, there's a lot of accounts of this. This seems like maybe there's something to it. And I <clears throat> I got really into the sort of uh, idea of like, maybe this is like, a, you know, the missing link kind of theory and that it's a, you know, flesh and bl- blood primate. And then, you know, Bryce started making this TV show and then we're, and we're getting more into the orbs. And, and as we continue to explore the paranormal and as, you know, the, what we refer to as the phenomenon at this point, and it's like, now I kind of see it more that way, some sort of archetype of the forest protector that's embedded deep within our subconscious mm. that's somehow connected to an external deeper fabric of reality kind of Love that. Thing. Riley, I love you know? that. You're such a great barometer to serve for our wonderful BCC listeners because you're a very pragmatic, uh, realistic guy who... Uh, I think is scientifically minded, but I've seen your bookshelf. You're definitely open, <laughs> open to different ideas and philosophies, and, and yeah. I love that. So you, you're the Thanks, perfect man. person uh, for us to convince Bigfoot is real. Yeah, <laughs> and I've, you've been trying and, for years. You keep it coming, guys. <laughs> and we're gonna comment on all this stuff and probably stop to unpack the nature of Bigfoot and the phenomenon along the way. But really, honestly, what I'm just trying to do here is put together a a historical timeline. And uh, so there might be some different viewpoints in terms of whether this is all folklore, whether this is 100% real. Um, But uh, really, I just wanted to paint everyone a picture of this is where this is the story of Bigfoot. This is the story. This is this is where this is how we ended up with Bigfoot Collectors Club, basically. Great. Great. You know, great. Um, also, I just want to say to all the listeners at home, my fan is on in my office because it's very hot here. So if it's you hear so it in the hot. background, I'm sorry, but I'm going to keep it going because I'm going to get steamy on this one. Yeah, well, <laughs> sweating in there, just yeah. convincing the masses. Yeah, yeah. Feels all right. right. Well, <laughs> let's take our first step into the dense and mystifying forest that we're calling the History of Bigfoot, Part 1. 
the Sasquatch Files. Uh, so I'm just going to remind all of our listeners at home that Bigfoot wasn't used as a term until 1958, but I'll probably apply it as a general term when talking about these creatures throughout all of history, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so let's go, let's begin with the pre-19th century. The figure of the hairy man or wild man has been around about as long as stories have been told. The wild man represents the untamed aspect of the human character, the part of us that is animal, that survives, that shies away from civilization. For some, the wild man also represents the past, real or imagined, simpler times, man living with nature instead of against it. The wild man can represent Adam and Eve if they never took a bite from the apple, never learned to distinguish themselves from the animal or vegetable kingdom. The wild man is a proto-human, or maybe even humanity in its purest form. Love that. An early example of the wild man in literature can be found in the Epic of Gilgamesh, an ancient Babylonian poem written around 2000 BC. In that story, Gilgamesh, the main character, has a partner, the Chewbacca to his Han Solo, if you will, named Enkidu, a wild man created by the god Anu. Like Han and Chewie, the pair even started out as combatants, but later became best friends. During medieval times, the wild man motif was seen everywhere, etched and painted onto shop signs, inns, hearths, and even carved into the beams that supported the home. The shaggy wild man was often illustrated in woodcuts and carvings, and according to folklorist Richard Bernheimer in his book Wild Men in the Middle Ages, this version is a, quote, Hairy man, curiously compounded of human and animal, without, however, sinking to the level of an ape. It exhibits upon its naked human anatomy a growth of fur, leaving bare only its face, feet, and hands, and, at times, its knees and elbows, or the breasts of the female of the species. End quote. Mm, talking about. Yeah. yeah, pendulous breasts, medieval style, baby. Sometimes the wild man was seen as a warning of what would happen to humanity if they were to regress. If, as Joshua Bluebus writes in his book, Bigfoot, The Life and Times of a Legend, quote, their horrible disfigurement was a warning of what would happen should God withdraw his blessing, end quote. This mythological archetype sometimes even possessed powers like uh, communion with animals or command over the weather. Merlin, in some versions of the Arthurian myth, was considered a wild man. It's not a stretch to say that linking magic or supernatural phenomenon to creatures like Bigfoot traces back centuries. It kind of makes you think twice about disregarding stories involving Bigfoot and, and, and balls of light or portals. Wizard now, Bigfoot. I like where yeah, you're going with this. Yeah, Wizard this Bigfoot's good. pretty rad. I'm into now, it. Obviously, the medieval wild man figure is a symbol. It's an archetype. It's a story. But it's also a story that people of those times took very seriously and was not really distinguished separate uh, from fact. I mean, look, I get it. Sometimes I have a hard time taking Star Wars too seriously. So no. I can relate. No. <laughs> By the 19th century, belief, or at least serious thought, about the traditional wild man had dissipated. But the potential for strange and wondrous animals were very much on the minds of white European settlers who were colonizing North America and pushing further west. Some of the earliest known Bigfoot tracks 
were discovered by a surveyor for the Hudson Bay Company named David Thompson, who in 1811 was on expedition in the wilds of Alberta, Canada, when he came across some animal tracks that he could not identify. January 7th, 1811. Continuing our journey in the afternoon, we came on the track of a large animal, the snow about six inches deep on the ice. I measured it, four large toes, each of four inches in length, to each a short claw. The ball of the foot sunk three inches lower than the toes. The hinder part of the foot did not mark well. The length, 14 inches by eight inches in breadth, walking from north to south and having passed six hours. We were in no humor to follow him. The men and Indians would have it to be a young mammoth, and I held it to be the track of a large old grizzled bear. Yet the shortness of the nails, the ball of the foot, and its great size was not that of a bear. Otherwise, that of a very large old bear. His claws worn away. This the Indians would not allow. Now, just exactly what the tracks were puzzled Thompson. The tracks appeared to vex him some time later because he even wrote about the incident a few more times over the years. He would later write this. Report from old times had made the head branches of this river and the mountains in the vicinity of the abode of one or more very large animals, to which I never appeared to give credence. For these reports appear to arise from the fondness for the marvelous so common to mankind. But the sight of the track of that large beast staggered me, and I often thought of it, yet never could bring myself to believe such an animal existed. I thought it might be the track of some monster bear. Whoever the tracks belonged to, they mystified the seasoned explorer. Mm. The mid-1800s saw the return of the wild man, this time in local newspapers across the country, as eyewitnesses and, in many cases, yellow journalists reported encounters with ape men in the rural woodlands and forest. Bryce, you did a whole episode on these stories earlier this summer, BCC 248 Early Bigfoot Report, so check that out for more. But in case you haven't heard uh, that episode yet, here's a small sample. The following is from a story published in, August, in the August 27, 1938 edition of the Dorchester County, Maryland, Aurora. Its headline reads, Strange Animal or Food for the Marvelous. So I know I like um, how the writing of this era refers to accounts as high strangeness as the marvelous or marvelous. Yeah, yeah, I like too. That's great. David Thompson did it in his journal too. He was like, people have a fondness for the marvelous. So uh, you know, talking about stories of big unidentified creatures and monsters living in the woods, and it's just funny how some of these uh, terms. Are popular for a while and then we we lose them i love i love that we should call these stories of the marvelous moving <laughs> forward the food for the marvelous segment maybe yeah or food is it a strange animal or food for the marvelous you decide <laughs> something like a year ago there was considerable talk about a strange animal said to have been seen in the southwestern part of bridgewater the story goes on to say with some reluctance due to the subject that some type of juvenile hairy hominid was seen picking berries, walking on two feet, and whistling before eyewitnesses scared it off. Two weeks later, the little Bigfoot was seen again, 
this time by a 16-year-old boy armed with a rifle. He said it looked like a human being, covered with black hair, about the size of his brother, who was six or seven years old. His gun was some little distance off, and he was very much frightened. He, however, got his gun and shot at the animal, but trembled so that he could not hold it still. The creature became known as the Whistling Wild Boy of the Woods. The father of the 16-year-old boy told the reporter that the incident bothered his son so badly that for a while, when the boy thought about what he'd seen, he would burst into tears. Sissy. This is wild, though. This is like one of the first... This is one of the earliest... 1811, this is one of the earliest published Bigfoot reports. And I find it really interesting that it is of a juvenile and not of your traditional... You know, if if somebody was going to make it up... It would seem like they would go with, I saw a seven-foot-tall beast with big, sharp teeth and big, hairy arms. But the idea that this kid, uh, and saying he looked like my little brother, like he was about the size of my little brother, you know, that's such a specific sighting. What do you make of the... Lens credibility, I think, you know? What do you make of the whistling, Bryce? Oh, man, I mean... the midnight whistler, uh, whistling in the woods. This is a common aspect we hear so often with with Bigfoot. Uh, so to me, it's just another, a little piece of contextual evidence that says there's something here more than just abstract journalism. Well, stories like this appeared in newspapers all over the states well into the 20th century, beginning with headlines like "A Wild Man of the Woods," "A Wild Man in the Mountains." The latest wild man. You can see where this is going. (laughs) It's so fun in that voice, isn't it? (laughs) It is. The wild man was becoming popular again because industrialization was growing, and therefore the human race was moving further away from nature. At the same time, there was also the gold rush, so more people were moving west and being exposed to nature for the first time. Reports of great apes were also circulating out of Africa in the early 19th century, but the first confirmed skeleton of a gorilla wasn't discovered until 1847. The first live gorilla wouldn't be confirmed until 1902, which is wild. That is wild when you think about it. Fucking crazy. Then, of course, there was Charles Darwin's Theory of Evolution, which debuted in The Origin of Species, published in 1859. People and primates were linked closer than ever. People had apes on the brain. There were, of course, also real wild men, humans and outlaws that had gone off the grid and were striking back against civilization. We talked about one of those very figures, John Turno, a.k.a. the wild man of Wainucci, a violent outlaw who evaded arrest for years out in the Oregon wilderness in the early 20th century. You can hear his story in uh, episode our episode Bigfoot with Markiplier. And let's just say that when the deputy sheriff finally caught up and killed John Turnow, he didn't look much different than a Bigfoot. Didn't smell much better than one either. <laughs> Another proto-Bigfoot story from this time period comes from none other than Teddy Roosevelt who wrote about the incident in his book, The Wilderness Hunter, which was published in 1890, but the story occurred probably around 1860, as he notes it was 30 years prior. This is great. In it, Roosevelt tells a secondhand story about a goblin who attacked a fellow beaver trapper he calls Bauman while Bauman and his partner were trapping beaver out in Montana. 
After a few days of feeling like they were being stalked by an unseen predator, the two men decided to call their trip short. They split up. Bauman went to collect their traps, and his partner went to gather up their belongings at camp. When Bauman returned to the campsite, he found his friend had been mutilated to death. Roosevelt writes... Bryce, you want to do the honors here? You want to play Teddy Roosevelt? Oh, sure. I love Teddy, yes. At first, Bauman could see nobody, nor did he receive an answer to his call. Stepping forward, he again shouted, and as he did so, his eye fell on the body of his friend, stretched beside the trunk of a great fallen spruce. Rushing towards it, the horrified trapper found that the body was still warm, but that the neck was broken. While there were four great fang marks in the throat... The footprints of the unknown beast creature, printed deep in the soft soil, told the whole story. The unfortunate man, having finished his packing, had sat down on the spruce log with his face to the fire and his back to the dense woods to wait for his companion. While thus waiting, his monstrous assailant, which must have been lurking in the woods, waited for a chance to catch one of the adventurers unprepared came silently up from behind, walking with long, noiseless steps, and seemingly still on two legs, evidently unheard, it reached the man and broke his neck by wrenching his head back with its forepaws, while it buried its teeth in his throat. It had not eaten the body, but apparently had romped and gambled around in the uncouth, ferocious glee, occasionally rolling over and over it and had then fled back into the soundless depths of the woods. Bauman, utterly unnerved and believing that the creature with which he had to deal was something either half-human or half-devil, some great goblin beast, abandoned everything but his rifle and struck off its speed down the pass, not halting until he reached the beaver meadows where the hobbled ponies were still grazing. Mounting, he rode onwards through the night, until beyond reach of pursuit. Okay, so not such a friendly forest spirit in this case. Yeah, man. I love the phrase, uh, gambled around in uncouth, ferocious glee. Yeah, like yeah. fucking leather, leather face. <laughs> this is like leather face with the chainsaw at the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, I, I love that. Uh, God, I love that, Roosevelt. What a great dude. Uh you know, this is also sort of the first uh, inkling we get that uh, that people are encroaching on 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 nature. On you know, they're they're trapping mm. the beavers. They're moving into unmarked and untrodden territory. And 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 old Biggie has something to say about that. You know, to offer a little context about this Bauman story. You know, Roosevelt wrote multiple books, all historical, in fact, and he was an avid hunter and conservationist. And as a matter of fact, this book has all stories about real hunting accounts uh, that, that, that he took part in, uh, in first account. But he had felt that obviously... This this story about Bauman uh, held so much sway to him, so much truth, and and it just rang true that he decided uh, to put that in his hunter uh, wilderness hunter book, the only story of its kind uh, that he ever wrote about like that. So I think it says a lot that that mm. that you know Theodore Roosevelt felt there was something to this this attack that happened. If you want to hear that story in more detail, check out BCC 35.1, the 4th of July special, Presidents in the Paranormal. Oh, yeah, that was a fun one. Yeah, 
Yeah, back in the early days. Public service announcement. Attention all my bearded beasts from stubble to Maine. Bryce's Uncle Dickie here, if you didn't already know. <laughs> I'm kind of part of the show. Manscaped now sells beard products. You heard that correctly. The leaders in below-the-waist grooming changed the game with their Beard Hedger Pro Kit. And now they're going a step further with their brand new handyman, an electric face shaver for a quick and convenient way to achieve a clean-shaven look. Huh? Whether you're looking to sharpen up your neckline or give your face that smooth finish, the handyman has you covered. Go to manscaped.com and use code BCC for 20% off and free shipping. It's time to go from 5 o'clock shady to yeah, baby. You know, I have been growing out my strike beard, as I'm calling it all summer long, Uncle Dickie, and I've been so excited because what I've really needed is some new, really good beard trimming uh, shavers and I finally have it. I hate having to dig through my old electric razors, find out uh, which clip you works for this and which clip works for that. What's going to give me my best my best look for my new beard? And I'm telling you the, uh, the beard hedger is awesome because I get any size that I want all in one machine. I love it. And nobody likes a weird beard. So say goodbye to all your stubble trouble with Manscaped's Beard Hedger. Yeah, the thing is a juggernaut for fixing faces. I don't know about you guys, though. <laughs> no, seriously. First off, this cordless trimmer has a rotary wheel that gives you 20 hair cutting lengths. All with one god. I mean, are you kidding me? So no more messy drawers full of extra add-ons. Boom. That's right. Face grooming doesn't need to be hard. Like Uncle Dickie. Get 20 different beard lengths in just one god. <laughs> Your face is your first impression, and your beard is your most important accessory. So make sure you have the right tool for the job with the Beard Hedger. Looking for something, dare I say, smoother? Look no further than Manscaped's new handyman face shaver. Tell them all about it, Bryce's smooth face friend. It's true. I like a smooth, clean shave, especially when I'm out on tour, and I have been loving the handyman. It's quick, it's easy, it gives a nice, crisp shave. It's excellent. So if you're like me, and you know clean shaving is a, ha a hassle. The handyman is the perfect compact tool I can take with me on the go to achieve that clean shaven look without all the effort. So get 20% off and free shipping with the code BCC at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code BCC. Hit the refresh button with Manscaped. Anytime there's a budding phenomenon, there are those folks who come along to capitalize on it. P.T. Barnum was one of those personalities who, in the 1860s, claimed to have captured a wild man and put it on display, or as he called it, the what is it? In reality, Barnum's wild man was just a circus geek dressed in a hairy costume. Then there was the Cardiff Giant, the manufactured remains created by New York tobacconist George C. Hull, who came up with the plot to create a petrified giant to fool Christians who believed in the giants of the Old Testament. Hull was a staunch atheist and very much in support of Darwin's theory of evolution. And he basically was like, I'll show you how gullible people are. I'll create yeah, a trolling. fake giant. Yeah, he was trolling. He was an early troll. So, excuse me, my cat, kitty cat allergies are kicking in. 
The Cardiff Giant went on exhibition in upstate New York, generating delegates and enjoying a solid run. Uh, generating delegates. I don't know what I'm saying here. Uh, ge- <laughs> went, went on exhibition exhibition in upstate New York. Uh, it, it enjoyed a solid run before Hull sold the Giant and its rights to a syndicate group for $23,000. That is over half a million dollars in today's money. So wow. this paid off. Damn, George. P.T. Barnum offered those buyers the, uh, the Giant for $50,000. And when they refused, he made his own wax copy and put it on display. By 1870, Hole admi- admitted that the whole thing had been a hoax. And when people wonder why anyone would uh, hoax anything, maybe they're thinking about the shit ton amount of money that Hole once made by carving a fake giant out of stone and putting it on display and charging Seriously. for it. Seriously. Damn. Over time, the news reports about hairy wildman creatures living in the woods of North America were just kind of forgotten. That is, until the interest in Sasquatch and Bigfoot emerged in the mid-20th century. So what do these old stories prove? According to John Green, not much. But they are important for one reason. What can be said about these stories? Not too much beyond the fact that they exist. There are no witnesses to talk to, and no one can be sure if any one of them is true or false. In most cases, we don't even know whether the people named even existed. The stories are important in one way, however. If there really is a species of hairy bipeds living in North America, there should have been people who encountered them in former years, and reports of some of those encounters should be on record. If there were no such stories, it would be a strong indication that there could be no such creatures. Many people would assume that to be the case. Those assumptions have proven to be mistaken. The old stories do exist, and people did not know about them. Ha-ha! Huzzah. Wildman stories reemerged in the news in a big way in 1924 with what we have come to refer to as the Ape Canyon Incident. On July 13, 1924, the Portland Oregonian ran a story about gold miners Fred Beck, Gabe Levifer, John Peterson, Marion Smith, and Smith's son Roy, who had spent a terrifying night fending their cabin off from multiple attacking ape men they called Hairy Mountain Devils. For a few weeks, Beck's crew had been prospecting a claim called Vander White, located two miles east of Mount St. Helens near Deep Canyon. First, they encountered the telltale sign of large, unidentifiable tracks while hiking in the area. There's also been the strange, strange sounds that they'd been hearing all night and all the week in the woods outside the canyon. They wondered if there might have been a connection. The men encountered a seven-foot-tall hairy biped in the woods and shot at it and missed. That night, their cabin was rocked by stones and body slams as a pack of big hairy monsters descended upon them. Beck told the Oregonian, They're covered with long black hair. Their ears are about four inches long and stick straight up. They have four toes, short and stubby. Beck and his crew survived the night, barely, and even managed to shoot and kill one of the creatures, who unfortunately fell into a deep crevasse and whose body could not be found or recovered. 
what it's worth, the newspaper does acknowledge that the tracks, which were 13 to 14 inches long, have been seen by forest rangers and prospectors for years. Over the next few decades, rumors of an ape-like bipedal being roaming North America began to grow as more and more eyewitnesses began to encounter the creature that was slowly starting to become known as Sasquatch. The term Sasquatch comes from First Nations people in the Pacific Northwest, whose affiliations include Halkomelum, Coast Salish, Squamish, Stolo, Kowich, and Kowichan tribes. The name derives from the Halkomelum version Sasketus, or Sasguts. According to Kelsey Charlie, a Stahelis band counselor, a local government member, while speaking to the BBC in a July 22 interview, the word comes from a mountain that's called Seskuts, the place where the Sasquatch gather. Everyone paid reverence and honor to the emblem of our nation, which is the Sasquatch. And sorry for butchering these terms. In 1929, a Canadian government worker named J.W. Burns published an article called Introducing B.C.'s Hairy Giants, a collection of strange tales about British Columbia's wild men, as told by those who say they've seen them. In the article, Burns repeatedly refers to the hairy giants spoken about in the stories as Sasquatches. The Sasquatch, according to Burns' research, was a tribe of hairy people, whom the First Nations people claimed had always lived in the mountains, populating the tunnels and cave systems. So, Mm. not an ape, people. The term Sasquatch had lasting power for white people fascinated by the stories of hairy giants living in the mountains of British Columbia. It became a household name for residents living in BC, and the name would have to do because it would still be another three decades before the term Bigfoot would be coined. Now, one of those residents was John Green, a journalist from Vancouver who grew up hearing stories about Sasquatch. Now, this is funny because John Green is a great, great guy. This is a guy whose uh, Bryce has been playing all episode long. It looks like you're, he looks like a Jimmy Stewart. He's like tall, lanky, thin guy of that era. Um, I always thought, and I've probably said it on this show, I always thought that... Uh, Green was a primatologist, but he wasn't. He's an author. He's a journalist. He started mm-hmm. as, a, as a reporter. He's like a Linda S. Godfrey. He was a guy who was mm-hmm. just a local newspaper reporter who was a skeptic, but then became like one of the like founding fathers of Bigfoot lore. Yeah, they call him the four horsemen of uh, of Bigfoot. God, I, I should be able to name all three, but pre- Peter... Uh, John Green was definitely one of them, along with, I think, Peter Byrne, who had recently passed, actually. And then I believe the other is Ivan T. Sanderson and, and um, oh, Renee, is it? Uh, Renee. Oh, Renee DeHinden. Uh, yeah, we're going to talk about Renee in, in a moment okay. here. And okay. uh, we'll get into some of these other guys, too. Uh, so in 1954, John Green bought the local newspaper in Augusta's, which covered the news for Harrison Hot Springs. That April, Green penned a funny April Fool's story about a Sasquatch who carried off Harrison Hot Springs Hotel to his habitat in the mountains. Like us, Green loved the stories. However, he never considered there was any real truth behind the legend. Sasquatch was just a myth, a figure from the types of tall tales that loggers and prospectors would swap around campfires about fearsome creatures haunting the woods of the Pacific Northwest. 
The stories of Sasquatch coming out of the Harrison Hot Springs area eventually caught the attention of a Swiss immigrant named Rene Dahinden. Mm. Dahinden had arrived in Canada in 1953 and heard stories about Sasquatch while working on a farm in Alberta. So he traveled to Harrison Hot Springs to speak to John Green about how to find out more about the elusive creature that was living in the area. So he bought this hook, line, and sinker. He was like, there is a monster in these woods and I want to find it. Green at first took pity on the man. However, Green's stance on the subject would soon change, and Dahinden would go on to become one of the most famous Bigfoot researchers of all time. More on him later in the series. Yeah, and I just looked up uh, the four horsemen of Bigfoot, and, and Ivan T. Sanderton wasn't one of them. It was Grover Krantz. Grover so, Krantz, of course. John Green, Peter Byrne, Grover Krantz, and Rene Dahinden. Yeah. All of this Sasquatch talk was bolstered by the fact that all this time on the other side of the world, ever since the 1920s, expeditions to Mount Everest were collecting wild stories and evidence of a strange ape-like creature called the Yeti, or more popularly, the Abominable Snowman. Yes. One English explorer, Eric Shipton, had found large, unidentifiable footprints in 1951 that had lit the world on fire. Throughout the 1950s, major news publications were funding various expeditions to find the Yeti. The dawn of what I would call the golden age of cryptozoology was taking place. The Bigfoot craze really began with the abominable snowman. Hmm. In 1956, Harrison Hot Springs was trying to figure out what to do with a government grant of $600 to celebrate the town's centennial. One hooker! <laughs> An idea no, George, by... we can't do it. <laughs> Never I... do my ideas. <laughs> We're gonna... We call them sex workers now, George. An idea by the Sentinel Committee suggested setting up a Sasquatch statue. Then someone else yes and that idea and pitched a Sasquatch hunt. Why don't we go find one? Let's get everyone involved. The story got out that the local government of Harrison Hot Springs wanted to throw a monster hunt and the story blew up. We're talking about major global news. This Maybe. tiny little town, all it took was one, one person to go, wait a minute, it's kind of like the UFO hearings, right? A government is taking Sasquatch seriously, even though they really weren't. But if a government was acknowledging this thing, uh, maybe it was real. That was a mm -hmm. big story. And of course, you know, everyone had Yeti fever. This was all the abominable snowman effect taking place. Sure. The monster, I mean, plus it's a monster hunt. Who doesn't like get, yes. get joining yeah, a posse and going after? Yeah, it's a good old fashioned yeah. monster hunt. Come and on. John, John Green talks about that in Sasquatch the Apes Among Us. He's like, look, we, we might hate to admit this, but people love monsters. And if people think there's a monster somewhere, they're going to go after it. And he was proven to be right time and time again in the next <laughs> few decades. The small town monsters were seen and all those monster posses rounded up and people were running into the woods and with their shotguns and their torches. Like they really people are into this stuff. It's something fun to do. <laughs> So keeping up with all this news on the home front, John Green began realizing that there were many locals who believed that the Sasquatch was in fact real. 
a janitor at the local high school in Augustus by the name of Essie Tipting contacted Green and told him that he had seen Sasquatch tracks at nearby Ruby Creek when he was 16 years old back in 1941. Now, if the name Ruby Creek rings a bell, it's because we covered that story back in BCC 148, the Ruby Creek incident with Russell Acorn. Of course, yeah. Yeah. So, flashing back to 1941, the Ruby Creek incident involved the Chapmans, a First Nations family who lived in the small town of Ruby Creek along the Fraser River. And that's about you know, 30 miles north of Augustus. And the family was made of George Chapman, his wife Jeannie, and their children, all under the age of 10. On a clear, beautiful day in September of 1941, Jeannie was tending to the family's quaint home when they that they lived in on the outskirts of town. It was a rural area alongside some railroad tracks, which George would often take to walk along and go to work uh, down in town. So he'd cut down the railroad tracks instead of going down the main path. That's important for later. George was down at work that day. He worked at the rail for the railroad. So Jeannie was alone with the kids who were all playing outside. Around 3 p.m., Jeannie's eldest boy came running into the house and proclaimed that a big cow was coming out of the woods. To her shock, Jeannie saw what she thought at first was a large bear crossing the tracks towards the house. But soon she realized was a gigantic man covered in hair. Mm. Jeannie uh, managed to swoop up the kids, elude the approaching creature, and take the main road into town, uh, where upon their arrival, Jeannie was discovered screaming, Help! The Sasquatch is after me! George, meanwhile, had returned from work, not knowing any of this had gone on because he'd taken the back way home along the railroad tracks, and he found that his little house had been ransacked and he discovered large humanoid footprints around the yard and even found hair stuck to the top of the doorway where the creature had ducked under and brushed against uh, the threshold to enter the house. It's kind of like uh, Snellgrove Lake. It gives me Snellgrove Lake vibes. Mm -hmm. So thankfully, George was reunited with his family, but the Chapmans moved away from that house shortly thereafter. There was some more activity that happened, and they were like, we got to get out of here. A local paper ran that story on October 21st, 1941. But despite the fact Jeannie had quoted describing the creature as a 10 feet tall, uh, 10 feet tall with a human face and calling it a Sasquatch, the article decidedly stated that what she'd seen was just a very large bear. So Tifting, the janitor, now we're back in uh, the early 50s, had told Green, I was one of those guys that saw these tracks. So, based on that lead, Green tracked down the son of Sheriff Dunn, who had since passed away. Sheriff Dunn was the man who'd measured the tracks, found at Chapman's house, and that son verified the story. He said, yep, this all happened. The tracks were there. It was a lot of big talk. Um, you know, the story was published, and people just kind of forgot about it. And that, I think, was the tipping point for Green the door to the reality that the Sasquatch was real cracked open in his mind, and it only got wider from there. Green set off on a project to collect as many Sasquatch eyewitness stories that he could gather, collecting them for what he referred to as his Sasquatch file. Other famous stories included the tale of Albert Ostman, a prospector who claimed to have been abducted by Sasquatch in 1924, the same year as Ape Canyon. Sasquatch had snatched Albert up in his sleeping bag and carried him off to his 
territory in the mountains, where Osman spent a few days held captive by a family of four hairy monsters. The story often defies belief. Highlights include Osman witnessing the young Sasquatch children bouncing 20 feet off the ground on their butts and making his escape by tricking the Papa Sasquatch to eat his snuff, sending him into a terrible fit. Green acknowledges that when he first heard the story, it sounded like a wild yarn, but it's notable for the anatomical detail which Osman provides in the story about these creatures. A more grounded story comes from a man named William Rowe. In fact, it was Rowe's account that inspired Osman to tell his story in 1957. So Osman had sat on this tale allegedly for 30 years. Green had read Rowe's account in a Vancouver newspaper and wrote to him in Edmonton, requesting that he might write down his experience in, quote, sworn form, end quote. So give me, let's, I need to know, Green's already starting to think like a researcher. I want to know that you're telling the truth. So William Rowe agreed. He wrote a sworn affidavit that he processed through the city of Edmonton and sent Green his account dated August 26, 1957. I had been working on the highway near Tijon Cache for about two years in October 1955. I decided to climb five miles up Micah Mountain to an old deserted mine just for something to do. I came inside of the mine about three o'clock in the afternoon after an easy climb. I had just come out of a patch of low brush into a clearing when I saw what I thought was a grizzly bear in the bush on the other side. I had shot a grizzly near that spot the year before. This one was only about 75 yards away, but I didn't want to shoot it, for I had no way of getting out. So I sat down on a small rock and watched, my rifle in my hands. Roe could make out his head and shoulders, and after a few moments, the creature stood up and entered a clearing. It was at that moment Roe concluded that he wasn't looking at a bear. My first impression was of a huge man, about six feet tall, almost three feet wide, and probably weighing somewhere near 300 pounds. It was covered from head to foot with dark brown silver-tipped hair, but as it came closer, I saw by its breast that it was female. Creature was built with wide, a wide straight frame, thick legs, and long thick arms that hung below her kneecaps. Its feet were broader proportionally than a man's, about five inches wide at the front and tapering to much thinner heels. When it walked, it placed the heel of its foot down first, and I could see the gray-brown skin or hide on the soles of its feet. It came to the edge of the bush I was hiding in within 20 feet of me and squatted down on its haunches. Reaching out its hands, it pulled the branches of bushes toward it and stripped the leaves with its teeth. Its lips curled flexibly around the leaves as it ate. I was close enough to see that its teeth were white and even. Roe went on to describe many of the anatomical features we've come to associate with Sasquatch. A conical ridge, human-like features mixed with ape-like qualities, and an exposed face. Finally, the wild thing must have got my scent for it looked directly at me through an opening in the brush. A look of amazement crossed its face. It looked so comical at the moment I had to grin. Still in crouched position, it backed up three or four short steps, then straightened up to its full height and started to walk rapidly back the way it had come. 
For a moment it watched me over its shoulder as it went, not exactly afraid, but as though it wanted no contact with anything strange. The thought came to me that if I shot it, I possibly might have a specimen of great interest to scientists the world over. I had heard stories of the Sasquatch, the giant hairy Indians that live in the legends of British Columbia Indians, and also many claims are still in fact alive today. Maybe this was a Sasquatch, I told myself. I leveled my rifle. The creature was still walking rapidly away, again, turning its head to look in my direction. I lowered the rifle. Although I have called the creature it, I felt now that it was a human being, and I knew I would never forgive myself if I killed it. Whether this was a Sasquatch, I do not know. It'll always remain a mystery to me unless another one is found. I hereby declare the above statement to be in every part true to the best of my powers of observation and recollection. Now, you may recall we covered this uh, incident back in episode 230, William Rose Sasquatch Encounter. And this really seemed to be, again, another, another seminal case that convinced John Green that Sasquatch wasn't a myth. I mean, so many really great small details in this encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, so John Green's thinking maybe this isn't a myth, but some sort of undiscovered ape, some primate that's living in North America. Yeah, well, I think it, this- I, I think it's important to say, too, that, I mean, when you, you know, back then and even still today, your word is your bond, you know, and to, and to make a sworn statement that wasn't, you know, something that people took lightly. It was, uh, that was your reputation on the line, and and people's work life it came by their reputation. So that, that was huge to do something like that. Yeah, that, and it was also important, John Green noted, because, and we talked about this previously, that this was kind of the first incident where someone described a Sasquatch looking more animalistic, even though it had very human qualities. It was mm-hmm. also ape-like and not as a hairy person or a hairy wild man or someone from a lost tribe. Like he was like, he's, this is where John Green's starting to go. Okay, wait a minute. All these stories seem to add up to the idea that there is a, and bringing it kind of back to where your mind breaks sometimes, Bryce, but this is where we get the undiscovered North American sure, wood ape stuff. I get it. it. all is starting here, right? And if we needed more evidence, or if John Green needed more evidence, big things were about to come out of California. We'll talk about that and whatever came of the Harrison Hot Springs Sasquatch Hunt next week in the History of Bigfoot Part 2. In the meantime, I want to recommend people to maybe go back and listen to BCC episodes 151 and 152 where we cover the abominable snowman. Uh, That might kill some time between these two parts. And we've done the William Rose story. We've done Fred uh, Fred Beck, uh, Ape Canyon. We've done Bauman's Goblin. We've done uh, uh, Albert Osman's mm-hmm. story. So you can also go back and listen to some of those if you want to flesh this out. That can kind of tie you over to next week because we don't want to get too deep into the weeds with those because we've covered them before. Except for this William Rowe one, I really feel like it's important to come back and and take another look at this one with this affidavit just because it really does influence the way that we imagine Sasquatch or Bigfoot today. Mm-hmm. Incredible. 
Wow. Well done, Michael. Nice work, man. Yes, you've laid a solid level foundation. <laughs> Great. Ready to build upon it. All right. Great. Well, we're going to keep going uh, into next week and probably the week thereafter. I'm going to have to figure out how to truncate this whole history into three episodes. <laughs> um, all right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and on threads at Bigfoot Collectors Club and on TikTok at BCC Pod. Write to us with your stories of high strangeness at Bigfoot Collectors Club at gmail.com. Hey guys, if you're all caught up on BCC and you want more, there's more. Check out our Patreon, BCC The Other Side. You can unlock three bonus episodes every month, plus our entire backlog. Get access to the BCC Discord. You get discounts on merch. Upgrade to the Cosmic Tier, where you'll unlock three additional BCC BCC soundtracks by Riley. Mm -hmm. That's all over at patreon.com slash Bigfoot Collectors Club. And if you do, we're going to shout your name out on the air like these fine folks. It's time for some Patreon shout-outs of the week. Woo. Nicholas Spillman, Cosmeteer. Thank you, Nicholas. Welcome. Lashhurst. Thank you, Lashhurst. Jen Larson. Thanks, Jen. Sean Anderson. Thanks, Sean. Travis Lee, Cosmeteer. Thank you, Travis. Welcome. Kenneth Milan, Cosmeteer. Thank you, Kenneth. Welcome. Rate. Thanks, Rate. Alicia Furrow. Thank you. Just some schmuck. Thank you, just some schmuck. Mikey Denton, <laughs> Cosmeteer. Thanks, Mikey. Welcome. Um, as for plugs, just follow me on McMills. Yeah, I'm over on them socials as well. Look for me there. And uh, I'm Peace Drone on Instagram and now on YouTube, at Peace underscore Drone. Uh, I'm doing my stable diffusion, and that's I'm making computer dreams and ambient nightmares. They're really fun. Go check them out. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Quite the invite. Uh, don't forget our live show, August 24th in downtown L.A. at 2-Bit Circus. Look for tickets uh, at 2bitcircus.com. If you can't be there in person, go to popsylounge.com. Get a VIP pass and uh, meet and greet with us before the show and stream the show from the comfort of your own home. Uh, thank you so much for being here. We're going to pop over to the other side. We're probably going to sidebar and do a little bit more dipping into the history of Bigfoot. Some of the stories that I didn't cover in that episode we're going to chat about over there. Uh, if we don't see you over on the other side, we'll see you back here for part two next week. Until then, good night. And Go get regrets. Bigfoot Collectors Club is executive produced by Michael McMillan, Riley Bray, and Bryce Johnson. Our show is engineered, produced, and scored by Riley Bray. Our theme song, Come Alone, is by Sun Eaters. Follow them on Spotify. Want more BCC? For exclusive full-length episodes every month and total access to the other side, check out patreon.com slash Bigfoot Collectors Club. Hey guys, Heather Ashley here, host of the Big Mad True Crime Podcast. If you're looking for a true crime podcast with all of the details and none of the small talk, you have found your people. 
Each week, we dive deep into a new case and learn everything there is to know, from getting to know the victim and the impact their cases had on those around them, to the investigation into what happened to them and who is or might be responsible, and if the bad guy looks like he might drink whiskey by a dumpster or has the social skills of an ogre, we say it because we were all thinking it anyway. As the name suggests, we get big mad over true crime, and I would love to have you join our incredible community of listeners with big hearts and zero time for small talk. Subscribe to Big Mad True Crime anywhere you listen to podcasts and listen to new episodes every single Monday. Hey, this is Eric Malinsky, host of the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Each episode, I explore different sci-fi fantasy genres, talking with filmmakers, novelists, game designers, cosplayers, comic book artists, and anyone who works in the field of make-believe. I also look at the fan experience, asking, why do we suspend our disbelief? You can subscribe to Imaginary Worlds wherever you get your podcasts.